Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, uh, this morning we are going to turn our attention uh, back to a sermon series we've been in in the book of Acts. Remember, uh, Acts, we've said from the beginning, is the story of the earliest church, the story of the first followers of Jesus, uh, and the process that that led them, the uh, spirit-empowered process that took this, this small little band of Jesus followers after the resurrection and led them uh, towards being a church and a religious movement that came to dominate the Roman Empire, uh, that came to fill every nook and cranny of the known world and would ultimately outlast uh, what was believed to be the strongest empire that anybody had ever seen under Caesar. That it was the church uh, that has endured for thousands of years. And we've seen, uh, as we look at their mission, at their community life, uh, the, the framework of what it means for us to pick up our place in that story, the story of the church's enduring witness and work in the world. And so we have a wonderful uh, passage this morning uh, looking at Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Uh, If you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Again, our reading today is Acts chapter 17, uh, 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And he said, what does this babbler wish? they said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except for telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said to them, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. It is given to us in love, and it is absolutely true. You can be seated. You know, there's, a, there's an old preacher's story, uh, which is to say that I don't think it ever happened, but it works. It's a great illustration. I've used it in weddings uh, before, although I don't think I've used it in anyone in here's wedding. Story goes like this. There's two boys uh, playing in the woods, as boys like to do, and they're picking up sticks and rocks and throwing things and exploring and climbing trees. And as they work their way through these woods, they come to an old house that they believe to be abandoned. And uh, not being able to turn away from a good mystery, they begin exploring the property of this house, peering in its windows and looking around and sneaking around the back until in the midst of this overgrown backyard, they come to a tennis court. Neither one of these boys had ever seen a tennis court before, and so they went out to the court and they saw the net and the lines and they found a tennis ball sitting there and began kicking it back and forth towards one another. Then one picked it up and tried to peg the other one, as again happens with young boys, And so as they're kicking this ball back and forth, all of a sudden a man comes down from the house. It hadn't been abandoned after all. And with him, he had two rackets and a fresh can of tennis balls, and he opened them, and he gave them a racket, and he tightened the net, and he taught them how to play tennis. He taught them the rules of the game. And one of the boys looked to the other one of the boys and says, man, this game is a whole lot harder, but it's also a whole lot more fun than just kicking that ball back and forth to each other. Okay, if you want to know how it applies to marriage, you have to get engaged, and I'll come and I'll preach it for you. But uh, it strikes me that something like this is what Paul is dealing with in Athens. He looks around and he sees a group of people trying to do the best that they can with what they have, trying to make sense of their life in this world. They have objects of worship, trying to cover all of their various bases for the various forces of the world. They have uh, philosophy. The two leading uh, schools of philosophy at the time, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And Paul looks out at this group and he sees a group of people groping around in the darkness looking for God. Groping around with the stuff of this life and trying to make sense of it. As we all are. right? Every one of us, including our neighbors, are trying to figure out in light of this world that we find ourselves in, in light of the desires of our heart, in light of our intuitions, of something more beyond this world, trying to figure out what kind of sense we can make of this world, what kind of God there might be, and what kind of response from us he's looking for. And so Paul in this passage seems to me like that man wandering down from the house with the tennis balls and the rackets and saying, let me show you, let me explain to you what this is all for what these lines and these nets and these balls are for, what you're meant to do with them. It may be more challenging along the way, but 
It is infinitely more fun, more full of life and joy and purpose and truth. And so Paul goes there with him. And we see in him uh, this beautiful picture of someone gently, winsomely, and yet boldly trying to persuade a group of people towards what we were made for. And so we're going to look at where Paul goes and what he sees and what he feels and then finally what he says. First, where Paul goes. Paul goes uh, to the city of Athens. Now, in walking into Athens, Paul walks right into the middle of the center of ancient philosophical life. This is the city of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And by the time that Paul gets there, the Epicureans and the Stoics, this is, of all of the ancient cities of the earth, this is where people went to wrestle and to think about the biggest questions of human existence. And so this story of Paul uh, encountering Athens is really one of the most beautiful and, and remarkable stories, certainly of the New Testament, but really of all of ancient religious literature. Because here what you have is the center of the ancient religious and philosophical world coming into an encounter with the gospel of Jesus. Here we have kind of the, the turning of a page from one era to another. The forces that had been the greatest shaping influences on Western culture up to this time coming into an encounter with Jesus who will be the greatest shaping influence of Western uh, religious culture after this time. And so what we start to see here in this interaction and in this collision of ideas is the turning of a historical page from one epoch to another, from one world to another. And as Paul steps in there, he confronts this pluralistic, diverse, and intellectually engaged world with the message of Jesus, right? There in Athens, he would have run into, right? We, we, we meet the Epicureans and the Stoics. You may know a little bit, of, if you, if you, depending on how much you remember of, you know, high school philosophy or civics or whatever. You might remember some of those guys. The, the Epicureans were kind of of the belief that the gods were distant and they were partying anyway, so we may as well join them, right? If the gods are seeking their own pleasure uh, on our behalf, we ought to seek our own pleasure, so the purpose of life is to suck all of the pleasure you can get out of it, out of it. And then you had the Stoics, those people who lived with the belief that uh, whatever God there was, he wasn't uh, this pantheon of gods. It was a God who, who kind of uh, filled all being. God that was in every nook and cranny of the world that you could kind of know, but not really. So a good life was meant to be found in self-restraint and moderation and restraining your passions. And then, in addition to these philosophers, you had ordinary, everyday folk. People who didn't know about the Epicureans or the Stoics or anything, but they were going to go and sacrifice to the idols, to the, the pantheon of the Greeks and Romans, just like their parents did before them. People who still clung to that kind of old religion. And so, into all of this, Paul steps a confusing and pluralistic world. And he goes... And I love where he goes. First, he goes to the synagogue where Paul always went first to talk to the Jews who are living in Athens. But then he goes right into uh, what's called their marketplace. 
Now, ancient Athens would have been arranged around a central marketplace where the center of Athenian life happened, where there would have been philosophical schools and gymnasiums, where there would have been commerce, banks, people buying and selling, where there would have been people practicing law, where there would have been people applying their trades and selling their goods. And it was right into the midst of that that Paul went to address the people around him. You know, we live in a world not unlike the world that Paul encountered in Athens, right? A world in which uh, there are many different views of the world, a world in which there are many religious options and philosophical options that are available to us. We speak into a world, we live out our lives in a world. Uh, increasingly, just like Paul encountered a pre-Christian Athens, we often encounter what, what we might think of as a post-Christian Western world, where the old consensuses around worldview and what's out there, what's beyond creation, have been breaking down and have broken down, so we speak into that world very much as Paul did, as one voice among many of the different options that are there. And yet, in the midst of that, Paul goes right into the middle of Athenian public life and starts talking about Jesus. You know, if there's, uh, of all of the different beliefs that we find in our world today, if there's one commonality among all of our beliefs, one of the things that holds them all together is the idea that your beliefs, your faith, is fundamentally private, right? We've come to the conclusion that, look, if we're going to get along with our vastly different beliefs, you better keep those to yourself, right? So we live in a world where you're free to believe whatever you believe. Just don't be weird about it, right? Don't talk about it too much. Don't make decisions in light of it. Don't bring it into your uh, business. Don't bring it into the way you think about the world. Don't bring it into your, uh, your neighborliness, right? The, the, the key to getting along is to give up the public square, it's to say that what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you might be true for you, but let's just all kind of agree to disagree on the things that matter most about our humanity and about our world. And yet Paul shows us a different way. He says that if Jesus has risen from the grave, if, if he is the one, then Christianity is a public claim. Right? It's not a claim about something, you know, it's not just the claim of, hey, you found your teacher, you found your spirituality, and I've found mine. It's a, it's a public claim that something happened in history. Right? Not just that there was a good teacher and I found him and he helps me, but that the, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, was born. And that he died and that he rose from the dead into the real world. And if that's true, it changes everything. It changes not just this part of our lives that we identify as the spiritual or religious part, it changes all of our lives. It changes the way we handle our money and the way we treat our neighbors and the way we go about our relationships, the way we evaluate the common good of our city and our nation and our world, right? That it's a public truth that makes public claims. And so uh, Paul goes into that world where the, there are other people staking their claim, right? The Epicureans and the Stoics, where they're trying to persuade others to come to view the world as they viewed it. And then Paul says, you know what, I'm going to step into that world and try not to demand and not to force, but to persuade of the viability of my view, of the viability of the Christian claim on the world. 
And in that, he's a model for us. You know, typically, uh, Christian engagement in the public square tends to kind of fall off the slope on one of two sides, right? One is that we demand a hearing, right? That we demand that our views be adopted and believed, so we, we attempt to shout down our neighbors, right? And the other is that we shrink back from engaging in the public square. We say, you know what? I'm just going to keep this to myself. I'm going to have my private view of spirituality, but I'm not in any way going to seek to persuade anyone of what I have found to be true in Jesus. And yet Paul shows us this other way, a way that's engaged, a way that's aware of the deepest thoughts of what's going on in his culture and in his world, in a way that's humble, right? He doesn't uh, come in demanding that everyone believe exactly as he believes, but yet boldly and persuasively finds places of commonality where they would agree, quotes some of their own thinkers and poets, and then finds places where they ought to be challenged in what they believe. And he does so winsomely and persuasively. And so that's where he goes. He goes into the center of the intellectual world of his day, and then he goes into the center of that city, into the marketplace. And then from there, he's going to go to the Areopagus, uh, Mars Hill, which is a, a, a naturally occurring hill at the center of Athens where philosophers would get together and evaluate one another and make judgments. And he goes there, uh, he's brought there, he's invited there to explain more about his faith. So that's where Paul goes. Let's talk about what Paul sees. When Paul looks around, verse 22, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He looks around and he says, look, I see, I see with my own eyes that you in every conceivable way are a very religious people. And he seizes on that as a chance to talk with them about what they're longing for, what they're looking for. He sees uh, their various places of worship. And this lines up with what Paul knows to be true of humanity, right? That God has made us with eternity written on our hearts, that God has made us in his image, that God has made us for himself. And so when Paul looks out and sees their objects of worship, he's going to get to a point where he critiques and challenges who they're worshiping and the way that they're worshiping. But first he affirms, he says, look, I can see that you all are a devout and religious people in every way, that you are searching for something, that you're looking for something outside of and beyond yourself, that every human being is made with a longing for God and transcendence, that try as we might, we can never quite tamp out, that try as we might, no matter how uh, modern and secular we may perceive ourselves to be, we never quite outrun that intuition that there's something beyond what can be seen and measured and known in this world, that there might be something more. David Dark, a philosophy professor at Belmont University, wrote a little book called Life is Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. I think it's a great title. We all, no matter how you think of yourself, to be a human being made in God's image is to be made for worship. It's to be made to hunt after transcendence and beauty and justice and righteousness. 
And you might seek it outside of the bounds of Christianity. You might seek it outside the bounds of any traditional religion. But as a bearer of God's image, you're searching for the one who made you. Searching for some sense of connection beyond this life and this world. You know, one of the great surprises, uh, in some ways, of the last hundred years has been the failure and the collapse of what some have called the secularization thesis. This is the idea uh, that held sway from kind of the 20th century, that the more people got modern, right, the more science we learned, the more enlightened we became, that religious expression would shrink, right? So the view was, the more science we learn, the more we understand the world, the less space is going to be left for things like God, religion, superstition. And so the idea was that the world was turning a page from religion to secularity. And the last hundred years have basically proven uh, that that's just not happening in anything like the way that it was predicted to happen. Now, religious life is changing. Right, we you know the we've talked about the rise of the nuns, n o n e s, in the U S. The the largest growing religious group in the in the U S. and in the Western world is those who don't proclaim an allegiance to any established religion. So the way that we think about religion culturally has changed a good bit, but people aren't becoming en masse atheists and agnostics. Instead, we see the, the explosion of weird internet-based religions. That's happened. Shocking no one, right? That The birth of the internet means if you're looking for somebody to have your quirky and weird religious beliefs, you can find them, right? If you're looking for somebody to believe in your strange mythologies, you can find them, right? It's, it starts to become more of a smorgasbord of religious, kind of a little bit from over here, a little bit from over there, but people are still searching for ultimate meaning, for transcendence, for justice, for beauty. And as participation in organized religion has declined, what's happened is that people start to weight their other uh, beliefs with more and more weight. Right? Have you ever, I don't know when the last time was you found yourself in a political discussion recently. Hopefully it was a very long time ago. But it, sometimes you'll be in the midst of those things and you go, you know what? It feels like this is a religious argument. Right? It feels like we're not just talking about big government or small government. Right? It feels like what we're talking about is views of justice and beauty and righteousness, things that we all think matter most. Right? So other things have gotten freighted with the weight of ultimacy, ultimate meaning. You could easily look around our city. You could easily look around our nation. You could spend 20 minutes on social media and easily give voice to what Paul says here. Look, I see that in every way, you all are very religious. Whether you admit it or not, whether you confess it or not, you are a religious people. And so Paul sees that. And then he sees something else. He sees the futility of the way that they approach these questions of ultimate meaning. Look at verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except for telling or hearing something new. These people just occupied their time with spreading the latest fads, the latest intellectual ideas. They filled their days talking about nothing except for what was newest, latest, coolest, trendiest. 
You can hear the vanity in what Paul's saying. He's like, look, y'all love to talk, but you're just gums flapping in the wind. You're not talking about, you're missing what's most substantial. You're missing what matters most. And so he looks and he sees that. And then he sees, it's interesting, even though he dismisses their talk, he then seizes on two quotes from their own philosophers and poets. First, uh, he grabs uh, a quote from Epinides of Crete, which I'm sure we all recognize, right? We all know old epitomies, where he wrote, in him we live and move and have our being. Look, he says, you already know that there is a transcendence beyond you, that you live within the realm of this divine presence and creation that upholds you and made you. And even as one of your own poets has said, and there he's quoting Aratus, for we are indeed his offspring. Right? Your own poets acknowledge that you are children of God, that you are made by him and belong to him. And so he sees this. He sees what's good. He sees their longings. He sees their attempts at religion. But he also sees something else. Verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Right? So get what he's saying. He's, he, he sees the beauty. He sees their worship. He sees their longing. He sees even the wisdom of their own poets and philosophers. But then his heart is broken because he sees where that longing has taken them. He sees a city full of idols. He sees a group of people who've taken their longings for the divine and made statues and said, this is our God, who've poured out worship to something that can't satisfy their ultimate hunger for God. You know, if we're going to engage our world, like Paul engaged his, from a posture of humility and boldness and winsomeness, we have to have the eyes to see what Paul saw, right? Paul saw, that's a hard, Paul saw, uh, both their dignity and their depravity. And both things are always going on at the same time, right? Because we're made in the image of God, us and our neighbors, every one of us bears an unshakable dignity, right? There is a beauty to every single one of us. There's something right about the longings of our neighbors and ourselves, no matter where those longings might take us. There's something good about bearing God's image. But, right, the biblical story in Genesis doesn't end with creation. It also includes the fall, right? In all of our cultures and in all of our neighbors' lives, there's also something broken. There's something that takes those good desires and distorts them into a place that cannot ultimately bring what we're looking for. And so if we're going to engage our community, if we're going to engage the public square, it means that we have to have eyes to see what's good, right? Where we can find commonality, where we can find agreement, where we can say like Paul did, look, your own philosophers say this, your own longings tell you this, and can weep over and testify to the but. But, but there's a sadness in where it's taken you. Every, every one of us longs. And those longings are like signposts, our longings for justice and beauty and transcendence and love. But they're meant to point us beyond the thing itself to the God who made us. G.K. Chesterton once said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. 
You go, man, it doesn't look like he's looking for God. <laughs> but what he's saying is every human desire, the deepest of our human desires, the desire to, to use that example for love and embrace and intimacy is a, is a God-given desire. And you may take it to every wrong place to satisfy it. But it doesn't mean the desire's wrong, right? It means that where you've taken it's wrong. The idols of this world that you've looked to to satisfy it are wrong. And so that's what Paul sees, the beauty and the brokenness of their lives. And then what Paul feels. Verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Some translations have that he was deeply distressed when he saw the idolatry going on in Athens. This is the same word that's used in the Greek, uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The same word that's used of God's jealousy. In Exodus chapter 20, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, the second commandment, the, the prohibition against worshiping idols, God says, you shall now not bow down or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Right, that God is a God, the God who made us is a jealous God. He's jealous for our worship. He's jealous for our hearts. He's jealous for our obedience. It's not a jealousy that comes from a position of insecurity. Right, it's not the jealousy that human beings have for one another. Right, it's usually, we don't think of jealousy as a positive thing. If you were to tell me, oh, my boyfriend's so jealous, I wouldn't think, that sounds like a healthy relationship. But God's jealousy is different because it's his by right, yes, yes. right? It's not, it's not a, a human relationship wanting all of you in, in, a, in an unhealthy way. Right. It's the God who made you saying, I will not share you. I won't share your worship. I won't share your obedience or your love with any other God, with any other thing that you look to to fill you up. I am a jealous God, that God is a God who's provoked out of love for his people, to want all of his people. Isaiah 65, 3 describes God's people's idolatry as a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick. And so when Paul's greatly distressed looking out at the Athenians, we see in him a man whose heart is starting to reflect the heart of God who's looking out at these people and starts to feel something of what God feels when he looks at people's idolatry. And it is an offense on God's behalf. The motive for Paul's preaching, the motive for Paul's mission, it's not for, so here's what it's not, right? It's not anger at the people, right? It's not I'm angry at these people who think differently than I do, who worship differently than I do. It's not even compassion for the people, although that's never far from Paul. Paul will talk with incredible compassion towards those who are outside of the faith. But first, his primary motivation has nothing to do with people. His primary motivation has everything to do with God, right? That the reason he wants to share his faith, the reason that he wants to bring the message of Jesus into the public square is because God deserves the worship and adoration and obedience and love of all people. And he knows that in the end, God receives it, right? One day, in the fullness of the kingdom, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, that God will receive the praise of all people. And Paul says, I want to do my part here and now 
to bring these people into that truth, to guide them out of their ignorance, he's going to call it, out of the fog of unknowing, and into knowing the God who he says is near to them, who's not far from any one of us. For God's sake, he wants to bring them into the worshiping community to teach them to worship God as he really is and to worship, God's rightly, or to worship God rightly. And so then finally we get to what Paul says when he finally opens his mouth uh, at the Areopagus and begins preaching. He seizes again on one of these moments and one of these touch points of commonality. He says, uh, verse 22, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. This is brilliant. What Paul says, he sees these altars and these temples to all of the different gods, right? Here's the, the temple to Zeus, and here's the one to Artemis, and uh, here's the one to Mercury. There's all of these temples. And yet, in the midst of this mall of religious options, right, this, this kind of shopping mall of gods, there's one there that says to an unknown god, right, this is, uh, this is, you know, you kind of think of it like this is the one for the person who can't make up their mind, Right? You ever walk into the food court at the mall and you go, I don't really want Chinese. I don't know if I want a burger. You know, so this is for the person that just can't quite make up their mind. It's the restaurant that has everything. We actually have historical records and evidence of these temples to the unknown God. And what seems to be the motive is this was a God to cover your bases. Right? So the idea was Look, we've made our sacrifices to Zeus. We've made our sacrifices to Artemis. We've made our sacrifices to Mercury. And you know what? Just in case there's a God out there we don't know about, we're going to make a sacrifice to this one too because the last thing we want to do is accidentally offend a God we didn't know existed. You remember, these people lived within a world where they were, they were motivated to sacrifice in order to avoid the judgment and whims of the gods. Where the thought was, if we sacrifice to the God of war, we'll be victorious in war. If we sacrifice to the God of the rain, we'll have a good harvest. If we sacrifice to the God of fertility, we'll have children. But just in case there's another God out there, we're going to sacrifice to him too. And Paul takes that, as superstitious and crazy as it is, and he says this, what you say you don't know, I'm going to tell you about. Because you've acknowledged that what you know about the world doesn't add up to make a whole. Right? You've acknowledged that when you do your best to do the math of the universe, there's still a remainder that you just can't quite square. And I'm here to tell you why you can't quite get the equation to work. Why there's bits of your, there's something out there that neither your philosophy nor your religion nor your superstition can quite account for. You know, every single Sunday, I know that we've got some people uh, in church, and I've been in your shoes before, for whom honestly the whole church thing is a little strange, right? Uh, the prayers, the whole bit about Jesus' resurrection, Son of God, all of that can seem strange. You're not sure if you believe it. In fact, you're pretty sure that you don't. It may be that the first step of faith for some of us 
is simply to come to a place where you're willing to say, there's something out there beyond what I know. Right? You may not yet be to a place where you can name it, but to say, you know what? There is more to the universe than I can make square in my equations. Right? There's more to creation. It doesn't matter how much I learn about science and physics and biology. There's still more out there. Right? That there's something about uh, no matter how much I learn about psychology and medicine, there's more to health and wholeness than what I can make sense of. No matter how much I learn about metaphysics and philosophy, there's still something more out there. To take the humility to say, I don't know all that there is to know, but I want to know. I want to know what's in that placeholder. Right? If I could peer behind into the temple of the unknown. If I could know that mystery, what would it be? What would it say? What would it want from me? Because what Paul does is he says, look, good for you that you acknowledge that there's something beyond what you can account for. And now let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about the God who you're looking for, but you don't know. He's the God who made you. He's the God who made all the peoples and set them in their place. He's the God in whom, whether you know it or not, you live and move and have your being. He's the God who made you, and so you can rightly say that you're his offspring, his children. And yet you can't reach him in the way that you've been trying to reach him. He says that he doesn't live in temples made by hands or in stone or silver or gold. Right? There's nothing in you, there's nothing that you can make or work or do, what he says to the art or imagination of man, that can get to it. If you're going to get to this God, it's going to have to be something not that you build towards him, but that he comes towards you. And he says, this God, though you're looking for him, though you're groping for him in the hopes that you might find him, and you've grabbed little pieces of him, he's not actually far from any of us, right? That he's not a God who plays hide and seek and stands back not wanting to be known. He's a God who comes near to us. And in the past... He says people all over the world worshipped in ignorance, right? You had your temples to Zeus. Other people in other parts of the world had their totem poles. Other people in other parts of the world had their religious beliefs. And God has taken all of that shroud of ignorance, and it's all been building towards this day when he's going to show himself to the world, where God, the unnamed, unknowable God to you, is going to put on flesh and blood. He's going to have a face and a name. And that's what he says. He says he's appointed this one man to judge. This one man, verse 31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's message here is really different than a lot of his messages, right? When he's preaching to the Jews, he starts and goes, heavy Old Testament prophets, here's how it leads you to, to seeing your longing for Jesus. Here he starts with poetry and, and, and uh, Greek philosophy and their worship, but he always ends up at the same place, Jesus risen from the dead. That the hope of this life, the hope of this world, what you're groping after is life beyond death, life beyond the constraints of this world and mortality. And in raising Jesus from the dead, God has offered that to you. In raising Jesus from the dead, he's shown you that he is superior to all of these idols, that he is better than any place else you could put your trust or your worship. 
I think it's true that every other object of worship ends up taking life from you. If you idolize money, you'll end up sacrificing your hours and your weeks and your years to its pursuit. If you idolize a relationship, you'll end up losing yourself and your life and codependency. If you idolize your nation, your ethnicity, your culture, it'll lead you to hatred and prejudice that takes the life of others. But by preaching the resurrection, Paul's saying, look, this is the only object of worship that gives his life for you, that gives his life and then raises you up to new life. Every other God demands that you sacrifice for him. This is the God who sacrifices for you. This is the God who doesn't demand death and payment. He calls you to new life, offers you hope and life. He's the only one, as we sang earlier, that's entirely deserving of your time, of your worship, of your obedience. In just a minute, after communion, we're going to sing a new hymn. It's one of my favorite hymns. It's, it's an old hymn, but it's one of my favorites. It's new for us. The name of the song is, Hast Thou Seen Him, Heard Him, Known Him? And it's a song all about Jesus being more, more beautiful and more worthy than every other object of our lives. That we don't let go of sin and idolatry simply by trying harder, by willing ourselves more, but by looking, by setting our eyes on Jesus, the one who is more beautiful and worthy. The song will use these words and then we'll close. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of his peerless worth. Captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now, unrivaled king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are without rival in this world, the only one who holds out life, the only one who holds out grace. Lord, we, like Peter, can say that now that we found you, we have nowhere else to go, no one else who holds the words of eternal life. And yet, Lord, we confess that we often go to so many other places. We go to the idols of this earth to give us meaning. Lord, we repent. Help us to set our eyes and our hearts on you alone. Lord, I pray uh, together with and for uh, anyone here today who's seeking something more out of this world, anyone who isn't quite sure what to name it, but who feels this intuition that they were made for more than what they're currently living. Lord, we cling to the promise that you are not far from any of us. Lord, that you are closer to us even than we are to ourselves. And so, Lord, we pray um, together that you would show us yourself, that whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time, that you would reveal a little bit more of your glory and grace and beauty to our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.